Good morning. How are you? How are the rest of you? <laughs> you know, it's amazing how many times we lie when people ask us how we're doing, right? <laughs> if we told them the truth, they wouldn't really want to hear that, not what they're asking for. Um, and yet, here we are, uh, having sung that last song and knowing that we are in his arms, in his hands. Uh, we really don't have anything to worry about, right? And yet we worry. <laughs> we have these challenges, and wow. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for allowing me to be here this weekend and through Tuesday evening, and uh, I pray that if you are able to come Tuesday, you do come. Uh, we'll spend about an hour together and uh, try to do some important things, I think, and uh, be praying for me and us as we continue our work together, of course, toward that end. But I am grateful to God for the privilege of being able to open His Word with you now, and I'll ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. We'll talk about that text in just a few minutes, and a little bit later, I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. It's going to be an application of what Colossians chapter 1 says. I'll try to make that make sense to you as we, as we get there. Uh, in just a moment, I'll pray for us, but before we do that, I want you to understand one thing about this passage in Colossians chapter 1. Honestly, there has been thousands of pages written about this text that we're going to read. Thousands. I mean, the number of words that have been spoken about this text are innumerable. It is an amazing text of Scripture. Um, my purpose today isn't to so much teach all of that or dive into all the nature of that. There's one part of it that my purpose is to get us to, and it's a place where I'll point it out to you, I'll try to say it very clearly, and it's actually something that I don't want you to miss. And so I alert you to it now. When we get to that juncture, I'll call it a warning. And I know the word warning has challenge to it, has difficulty at times to it, because I don't know about you, but I don't like to be warned. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be alerted, but not warned. And yet it's a warning, and it's real, and it's something that we as Christians and those who have committed our life to Christ and to the life of the church and what it means to be the church in this world need to pay attention to because we transgress it easily. We don't want to, but we do. And how we transgress it becomes the point and the application in Hebrews chapter 12 is a way to make sure that that warning is heard and responded to, listened to, and actually not failed to understand so that we press into that. And Paul is very clear in this and his text, as you know, and um, many of you, I'm sure, know this text really well. If you don't know this text really well, I would invite you to get it to know it very, very well in, uh, in my experience, if you read a text over and over and over and over and over again, and just keep reading it and reading it and reading it, don't try to dissect it, just read it. When you get to the hundredth reading, you're going to understand it. And the power of that is amazing. And so I invite you to do that and to jump in with me. But I want to pray for us first as we get to the preeminence and purpose of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for what you do in our lives every day uh, as we have sung so many of these wonderful songs and hymns and I think about that one that was written in 1390 wow 
um, and the truth of it is amazing. It's very precious. And we recognize that you came into this world, Lord Jesus, and you came into this world you know, as who you are, and you are the preeminent one, and you came into this world with a purpose that we'll see in this text, and you came into this world to impact us, and that we not fail, that we not fail to understand what you're up to and what you're doing inside of us, and especially in our lives, and when we get to the nature of our relationships and the challenges of our relationships, and especially when conflict is alive and well, and it, it can steal from us, Father. It can steal from us those very things that you want for us, even peace that we've sung about, uh, harmony, um, the, the opportunity of relational unity, the opportunity of what it means to be together, to be one, to be one in you, and you've called us to those things. You've, you've actually purchased us for those things. That is who we are. We are your people, your children, your church, your bride. Lord, we must never forget those things. For when we forget who we are, what we do ends up taking a hit. And yet in the power of what it means to understand our identity and to press into our identity, it can empower us to live well and to live effectively and to live according to the gospel. Uh, may you remind us of those things even as we think about Colossians 1. And may you teach us and help us to understand the intensity of what Hebrews 12 is saying and how that passage can become applicable in each one of our lives. God, grant us the grace of that. As you speak to us through your word this morning, Lord, our attention will be uh, keenly aware of your Holy Spirit and what he wants. I pray that you even do that in my heart. There's a lot of things I could talk about in this message. Lead me to those ones that you want these folks to hear. Uh, I trust you for that first. I thank you for that second, and I expect it third. Uh, praise you, God, for the faith that you've given us now. Uh, even as we walk through this text, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the purpose of Jesus Christ is a purpose. And you can look at this text. You've probably read it before. It's in Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15. I'll just read the text and we'll comment on it, and then we'll move on to the next part of this. But just notice the preeminence of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is preeminent. It's, it's amazing to me what this text says. It says so many different things, and it's one of those applicational kind of thoughts when you look at that first phrase that he's the image of the invisible God. He's the first opportunity for us to see, for us to understand, for us to engage with the nature of who God is. Without Jesus, we don't have anything that helps us do that. He actually is the picture of what it means to be Christ, to what it means to be God, to what it means to be divinity, to be holy. And the power of that for us allows us to see him and recognize that he is now knowable 
and I can know him. You can know him. That makes him preeminent in all of creation. Nothing else in creation has led us to know who he is except Jesus Christ. You know, the world teaches us and life teaches us that there is a God. We see it in nature. We see it in the operations of, of creation, all of those things. We recognize that. But it's not transferable to us to engage with God. Christ is that for us. He is the one who makes him knowable to us. He's the creator of all things. And just notice all things in this translation is used five different times, I think, four or five different times. All things over and over again. Christ is preeminent in those things. This means that you were created for him. You weren't created for yourself. You weren't created for this world. You weren't even created for life. You were created for Christ. And the discovery of that and placing him in that position that, as the end of this text says, he himself will come to have first place in everything means that he has first place in your life. It means that you figure out how he's the head of the church, what it means to be part of the church. You know, whether you're a member or a leader, those are important factors in the life of a church. But those two factors aren't the point. Whether you're a member or a leader is not the point. They become important to us, and to us sometimes they will become the point, and that replaces him. Don't allow that to happen. Understand the nature that if if he's the point, we replaced him, we're taking him out of his place, and he's no longer having first place in everything. Interesting. Now look at the purpose of Jesus, verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Wow. Based on who he is, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt within Jesus Christ. It's who he is. Who always precedes what? And when we invert it to make what more important than who, we misunderstand the nature of who Christ is and the nature of our relationship with him and with each other. We must put the emphasis on who first. The reason why Christ is the one who is our Savior is because of who He is, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. He's come to dwell among us, and He came as Christ, sinless. We know those truths, and thus He went to the cross. What He did for us, the one thing that we could not do for ourselves, was reconcile ourselves. We couldn't do that. We couldn't reconcile each other. We couldn't reconcile our relationship. But he came to the cross and purchased the ability to do that. His purpose, if you look in the middle of verse 20, to reconcile all things to himself. Now notice it's everything. You know what some Christians actually believe? They believe that the gospel is intended to reconcile us to God, maybe to each other, but there's all kinds of things in life, like business, like sport, like the nature of what we're interested in, what we want to do in our vacation time or just that pleasure time is separate from that. And that is not what this text says. Look, 
He reconciled all things to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven. And how did he do that? Having made peace through the blood of his cross. He reconciled us through his blood. Reconciliation of anything, reconciliation of everything, reconciliation of any relationship, any person occurs through the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ. It comes through his blood. It's not reasonability. Now, I get reasonability. We need to be reasonable with each other. It's part of God's wisdom, James 3, 17. Understanding that we need to come to reasonableness. And we need to express that reasonableness. But that's not the basis upon which we reconcile. We don't reconcile by agreement. We don't reconcile by commonness or by overcoming the differences. We reconcile through one means, and it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no reconciliation without that. And we've got to remember that's why he came. He came to give us what we could not produce ourselves. Now notice the next piece of this. I call it the now for you and me. Verse 21. For although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now... That's, that's now. That's now. That's not next week. It's today. It's this moment. It's always this moment. It's always present tense. Yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's a now work. It's happening today. It's happening in the exchanges that we have with each other. The work, in, the work of reconciliation is always now. It's not next. It's now. And now needs to be our focus. Not then, not next, now, right now. If we do that, we, we grow. We have opportunity. I mean, when we're reconciled, he changed our story, didn't he? He changed our life. He transformed us. We're no longer alienated. We're no longer hostile. But now we're not characterized by evil deeds. Now we're free to live in righteousness. His righteousness. We're free to obey. People outside the gospel don't have the ability to obey God. You have the ability to obey God. And it comes through the nature of the cross, through the nature of what he's doing in you, so that he presents you before him. And he's in the process of doing that now. One day he will do it, but now is the time when he wants you to grow in that holiness, when he wants you to grow, understand the blamelessness that he creates inside of our lives. Not by your deeds, but by his sacrifice. It's by Christ and Christ alone. Does that make sense? I mean, today, now, our focus on his gospel, vital. It's, it's an understanding that I know we believe it. Theology. You know, the position of our theology. We got it. We understand. But how we practice that takes a hit and it takes a hit for all kinds of reasons and unfortunately we move away from the gospel so he warns us he actually has the warning it's in the very next word and I'm, by the way he starts with the word if in verse 23 if there's a condition inside of this now I'm not going to talk about that condition today I'll leave that for someone else to talk you through and to grasp an understanding of but just notice it as a condition and then notice the warning. And it's a warning not to miss. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, here's the part I want to focus on. Not 
shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, out of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I mean, the power of this not shifting. You know, not shifting is not a hard concept. Shifting is just moving, you know, it's just a pushover, you know, just a separation from here to here. We just shift just a little bit. We shift off center. We shift off focus. We're not, we're not maintaining the focus on the gospel, for example. I mean, it's not hard. It's, we, we, just, we just step away from it. It's easy to do. Sometimes we do it emotively. Sometimes our, the, the level of fear, you know, I don't know what you're like, but I, I, this fear quotient in my life is high. You know, we sang that one song a little bit earlier and about fear and that, I mean, I saw that word and I said, oh my, this is me. <laughs> this is me. You know, some people it's different. But I, and, and, and that fear can cause me to shift away. It can cause me to move away from the gospel and I'm concerned. In my work around the country, you know, for 15 years and seeing hundreds of different churches and, and, and thousands of different people and situations, I get very concerned that we're shifting. And we shift just off to center. That's all we have to do so that we, we shift away. You know, you know, here's how it gets expressed. You know, a person will look at it and they'll look at a situation and they'll say, you know, I don't have any hope this is going to change. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. It's not even the gospel that the shift is about. It's the shift from the hope of the gospel. Now, if I retract my behavior away from the gospel, if I stop applying the gospel directly, purpose, purposefully, because it was the purpose of Jesus, and it's through His blood that reconciliation of all things, nothing outside of the realm of reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ, there is nothing that's outside of the realm of that. If I shift away from the gospel, that's a real problem. I've got to apply the gospel. I'll give you a way of doing that through Hebrews 12 in just a moment. But if I shift away from the God, but if I shift away from the hope of the gospel, do I end up believing something is hopeless? I end up believing something can't be resolved. I believe in irreconcilable differences. And as some of us talked about yesterday, irreconcilable is used one time in the New Testament. It's in he it's in 2 Timothy uh, I think it was Timothy, is that right? 2 Timothy 3, 3. And it's, but it's attributed to the non-Christian. That word's attributed to the non-Christian. And some, some translations translate that word unappeasable. There's no appeasing of this situation. No satisfaction will come out of this situation. Another translation has it unforgiven. And it, the, the, the actual word that's translated there is a word that means no alter. They have no cross. They have no means to go. They have no place to go to where they can say, Christ, I put this at your feet. You are the cleansing agent, not me. I have hope in that. And not to lose that hope. And I get concerned that conflict causes us to shift away from our focus. And we lose hope. I'll give you examples, the ones that we run into all of the time. I'll just give you three or four of those and just name them and then we'll move on. But the first one is we shift from the gospel and the hope of the gospel to relational loyalty. 
talked about this for a moment yesterday. I haven't done it any justice, by the way. There's a lot involved in relational loyalty because loyalty is a good thing. But when I get loyal to you and I'm not loyal to Christ, when I get loyal to you and my friendship with you and I'm not loyal to what Christ calls me to in the gospel and what the power of the gospel, the exhortations of scripture actually call me to act on, I'm just staying inside my loyalty with you, I've shifted away from the hope of the gospel. It's, it's a problem. Another example is just safety, you know, personal safety. Some would call it self-protectiveness, you know, where I say things to be self-protective. I insulate myself instead of pressing into the gospel. You know, the gospel creates vulnerability in me. The gospel tells me I'm a sinner. The gospel points out where I'm wrong, not just that I'm wrong, but where I'm wrong. The gospel calls me to own that and to confess that and to repent of that. The gospel has a lot of impact on those places in my life where I'm weak and where I'm sinful. Actually, idolatrous. We're more idolatrous than we know. We're more idolatrous than we know. And the power of that idolatry just shifts us away from the hope of the gospel. And self-protective is an example of it. Very practical one I talked a little bit about in Sunday school is having a specific outcome that we're out for in a conflict. That's, that, that's what has to result. It just causes us to shift away from the gospel because God may want something different. Why aren't we just committed to his will? Why aren't we just committed to his outcome and discovery? Committed to discovery. Let's discover what it is. If we, you and me, we apply the gospel together, I mean, just think about this text. If we apply the gospel together, do you think we're going to get to some other outcome? <laughs> Not good thinking. Let's apply the gospel together. Let's get vulnerable. And the vulnerability is a gift. The vulnerability is precious. It's something that God gives us. But when we get committed to an outcome, we've already decided what it is, we find that problematic in the work we do, you know. Just, just changing the means of what we, how we do this, away from the gospel, shifting away from the hope of the gospel. We change the means of how we even resolve an issue. We just get human about it. I get it, you know? Like, you know what, my main, my main way of making sure that I am resolving conflict, you know what my main way of doing it is? It's called running away. <laughs> I just won't deal with it, I'll just ignore it. It'll go away. Time heals all things, right? Do you believe that? Please say no. <laughs> Christ heals the gospel heals. Engagement heals. We heal together. Healing doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in a community. It happens in an engagement. It happens in an actual in encounter. And when we start believing that and not changing the means by which we do it, you know, reasonability is just one example of it. We shift. I'm concerned, and broadly concerned. And, and one of the, one of the uh, I call it in this next section, I'll call it the price too big to pay. One of the, one of the results of that shift 
is a price you don't want to pay. And no thinking person would. Not when you let the scripture say what it says about that problem and about that outcome. And if we don't, if we don't press in and apply the gospel and not shift away from it and, and genuinely get it relationally tuned, toned, expressed, we're, we're, we're in trouble. So in Hebrews chapter 12, here's an example of it. There's many different places in God's word we could go to right now, but I'm going to this particular text on purpose. I'm going to this particular text because of what it says, and it's so understandable and so clear it can't be misunderstood. And I'm going to try to add a couple of things to it just by explanation that will be helpful. You know, context... The application of the gospel is always relational. The application of the gospel is always relational. Christ came into this world and became a human being. He identified with us. He was in relationship with us. And for him to actually achieve what he was after achieving, he had to do that. And he knew it, and so he did it. And, you know, it's It's amazing. And yet so many times we move away from that and forget the relationship, and we shouldn't, because it's about who. Who first, then what? It's about who. Who you are in Christ. Who you are in your calling. Who you are as the church of Jesus Christ. And what it means to be covenant church is powerful. And we need to not move away from that or shift away from that. So that whole first piece is that. I mean, it just it, it has an amazing bandwidth, you know, and the depth of it. And it moves to the level of the heart, not just the head. I mean, one of the reasons why conflict stays alive and unresolvable to us so many times is we think too much about it. Well, all we're doing is thinking and processing, and we're staying mental, and we're staying reasonable, we're doing all, not getting to the heart level. We've got to move to the heart. When Christ came into this world, he moved to the heart. I mean, he pressed into himself, and he did it himself. He was our example. He called his disciples to it, and he calls us to it. So applying the gospel relationally, first order, you know? That's what God did. He came into this world and embraced us and genuinely moved. I know you know that. I mean, it's easy to know that, right? It's, it's easy to remember that. But how do you apply it? What does it look like to apply it? So in the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to give you just a little context for the book, Chapter 13, verse 22, actually, Paul, the writer of this, I'm not sure who it is, but the writer of this letter, he says, I've written to you briefly. When I get to heaven, I'm going to find out who wrote it and ask him about that, because 13 chapters is not brief, okay? I've written to you briefly, and he says, this exhortation, the entire letter is an exhortation. Now, exhortation is the word parakaleo in the Greek language, paraklete, the one come alongside of, an exhortation is to come alongside of us. I think a certain way. The exhortation brings a new thought to me. I'm going to try to add a couple of new thoughts for you today. When that exhortation comes to me, I need to embrace it, step into it, apply it, actually live by that exhortation, and I'm making progress now. Now I'm listening. Now I'm paying attention to the exhortations. Many of them are in the imperative mood, which means they're commands. Some of them are, are, are in the indicative mood, by the way, because they're characteristic of something. And if I'm going to be true inside of that, such as being the church, I'm going to be true by that thing that's indicative of the church to be true of me. The exhortation pulls me to that. It identifies that. It's clear. 
And over and over and over again in this letter of Hebrews, there's these amazing exhortations. I think there's two major exhortations in the letter. I, I believe one of them is a personal exhortation. It's found in chapter 4. I'm actually going to introduce you to that exhortation Tuesday night. Now, that exhortation is for me. I can do that exhortation by myself. I can do that exhortation whether you do it or not. But this exhortation in chapter 12 is the second major exhortation, and it's not written to me, it's written to us. I can't do Hebrews chapter 12 by myself. I need you. We need each other. This is to us, and it's major. It's the whole chapter. And I believe that whole chapter is, and boy, if you read it a hundred times, you'd really get a sense of it. This, the nature of where he's taking us from verse 1 all the way through the end. I mean, we don't even understand who we are as the church because we don't understand Hebrews 12. He speaks to who we are as the church. Just look at where he places us in that letter. It's amazing. And we've got to remember that. That's part of the now. That's part of this press in. So, the, so, so exhortations are clear pathways. They tell you what to do. And they're not confusing. For example, this one, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men. I mean, what's confusing about that? Another translation translates that word pursue, strive for. Strive for. Let me give you the etymology of the word. That word that's translated pursue or strive for begins in its etymology, it's the word run. It's not the word walk. So it's an energy word. It's an effort word. It's an intentional word. I am pursuing with intent. I am energized to move into that pursuit. I mean, he means it. He's using a word that's a very specific word. Fifteen times in the New Testament it's used this way. Fifteen times. He's saying, I want you to focus on this. I want you to prioritize this. I want you to actionable this. I want you to literally understand I'm asking you to do something. I'm asking you to pursue. That's what it means, 15 times. I mean, that alone tells you he means it, right? I mean, pursue peace. And sanctification, or another translation, uses the word holiness there. And the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You know what most people do in conflict? They pursue the cessation of war. They call that peace. And they don't pursue becoming more like Christ. And they fail this exhortation because we are to pursue two. Peace and sanctification. Peace and holiness. Can you imagine what would change if two people who are at odds with each other, could be a husband and wife, just arguing and arguing and arguing. Do you love those movies when they just argue all the time? I hate them. <laughs> I go, that's not why I'm in a movie. <laughs> I'm trying to escape, right? I'm an escaper, right? <laughs> I'm trying to escape all of this stuff. And all of a sudden, you're just bashing me with it. Turn it off. <laughs> that's what I did this morning. Boom. <laughs> I mean, it's easy because we're not pursuing both. But what if those two, that husband and that wife, actually were working so the other person, their spouse, becomes more like Christ? And their intent on that person to grow, to be more like Christ. It changes the intent of what I'm going after. This word pursue means to go after with intent, 
on purpose. And peace, sanctification are two of those things he's after. Now let me rank it up one level higher. 31 times this same Greek word, same Greek construction, is translated differently than pursue or strive for. 15 times it's positive, it's translated this way. 31 times it's used negatively. So now I'm pursuing someone with ill will. I'm after someone, not for peace and sanctification, but for getting them, for hammering them, for nailing them to the wall, watching them bleed. I'm pursuing them with ill will. The English word that is translated this very same Greek instruction instead of pursue is the word persecute. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. If you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, wow, that's a privilege. 31 times the word persecute. I am going after this person with harm in mind. I want them done. I want them dead. I want them down. I want them to lose. I'm after them. Same word. No difference at all. Two times as much, as many times the New Testament translates it negatively. You think he means it when he says pursue peace and sanctification? (laughs) That's the point. He means it. He could have chosen a lot of words to use. You know, even the next verse, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. I mean, there's a word. See to it. Make sure that happens. What would happen in conflict if if you, as the person who is the opponent of another person, they, as the person who's your opponent, were to actually make sure that you felt the grace and experienced the grace of God? If part of the purpose, the intent you had was to make sure that person experienced grace. You know what? We don't want them to experience grace. We want them to be exposed. That's what conflict generally is. We want, we want them to be outed. We want to prove they're wrong. We want to make sure we win. All kinds of ways to say it. And yet here it is. Exhortation. See to it. Make sure no one comes short of the grace of God. How do you do that when you don't like that person? Well, if I'm going to apply the gospel and not shift away from the hope of the gospel, I need to make sure that I'm looking at the conflict that I have with you and that you are experiencing grace at the end of that conflict, through the midst of that conflict. Grace is a power. Grace comes from God. Grace is not something human. Grace actually gives us something we can't produce ourselves. Its companion is mercy, which keeps us away from what we deserve. And so many times in conflict, we want the person to get what they deserve. That's not like Christ. He wants the very opposite. By the way, this word that's translated, the phrase, see to it, is episcopeo. It's the word oversee or overseer. It's the word attributed to elders. I mean, I'm to make sure, I'm to see to it. I am to oversee this situation, make sure grace appears in the life of the person that is my opponent right now. I mean, what would happen if we change that? See, why would we do that? Now, I'll give you the biblical answer in a second. I'll give you the warning answer in a second. But why would we do that is because we believe in the gospel. 
While we do that, we believe that the power of God's grace will transform that person and us, my relationship with that person. We don't have a hope of transforming it through any other means. And if you have a hope through some other means, you've shifted away from the gospel. Don't do it. <laughs> we don't have to. But we've got to get intentional. We've got to pursue. We've got to get intentional. We've got to oversee. And make sure these things happen. Peace, holiness, sanctification, growing to be like Christ. And the nature of grace. The conflict is actually the opportunity to experience those things in more depth than you've ever experienced them before. And in God's sovereignty, the reason why He has conflict in your life is because He knows you won't learn it if you don't go through something deep. Something that presses you past yourself and gets you to your heart out of your head to your heart and get you out of this world and how we respond to conflict in this world and get to the gospel and apply the gospel. That's why he does it. If you don't, guess what happens? Go to the next slide for us. That there be no immoral person or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. And the concept of repentance there and the sought, seeking it with tears means he, he wanted it. He, he sincerely wanted it. There's sincerity in Esau. He couldn't find it. Now, when you back up to the other verse and you read the rest of verse 15, which is not on the slide, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that, this is the word ina in the Greek language, it's a purpose word, in order that, here's, here's the reason why the grace is so needed, that no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Bitterness is a price too big to pay. Now, the evidence that bitterness is rooting in a person's life is in this text where they find no place for repentance. The inability to repent of your own sin happens. This is why the apostle is warning us, and he's using Esau of all people, I mean, when I get to heaven, I'm going to find this guy who wrote this book and say, why Esau? I mean, pick Jacob or somebody I'm more like. I don't think I'm like Esau. My identification with Esau is foreign, but he's picking him on purpose. He's picking him with contrast in mind. He's picking him so that we will understand this guy lost, and he lost for a thousand reasons, but the the evidential reason, the actual reason why he lost was he didn't repent of his own sin. And the apostle is trying to warn us that bitterness, when it springs up, causes trouble, many be defiled. That word defiled means useless. And by the way, you know who the many are? It's the people closest to us. It's our children. It's other members of the body of Jesus Christ. You don't want to pay this price. 
And shifting away from the gospel will almost ensure that you're going to get there. You're going to fail this task to pursuit. You're going to fail this task of overseeing, making sure that grace occurs. When we do those three things, when we're making sure peace, sanctification, grace is being experienced, that no root of bitterness may spring up is actually true for us. We can walk away from bitterness and not become bitter. Bitterness is a sourness in life. Bitterness stains us, it changes us. And it's powerful. And it's, it's I mean, God doesn't want it for us. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel would walk through the wilderness, they were looking for something to drink. <laughs> you know, they needed liquid. And water wasn't exactly in bottles like I could pull my water bottle out and show it to you. I mean, you know, they didn't have that. And they would walk and all of a sudden run out of water. Now they're looking for plants. And they would look for a plant that was fibrous and one that had volumes of liquid in it. And they would drink that liquid. And that was how they sustained themselves through the wilderness. Where there was one plant that they learned if they drank it, uh, they were in trouble. And the name of the plant in English is an interesting word. Uh, it's a picture word. It's not hard to understand. You hear it, you'll understand the picture of it. But it actually is a word that's attributed to bitterness. This plant was called wormwood. Wood that has been eaten by worms. Wood that has been infiltrated with termites or whatever causes the wood just to crumble. It no longer has the stiffness and the stability and the ability for us to be able to put weight on it. You can't put weight on it. It was called wormwood. Now that, that fibrous plant, wormwood, had all kinds of liquid in it. If you didn't know, you would chop that plant in half and just ingest that stuff. And it would satisfy you momentarily. But what happens inside the human body when the person ingested wormwood liquid, it would actually go into their body, and just as it did in the plant, it would saturate every fiber of their physical body, and it made them sick. They had pain, and the pain was unending. The pain was always present. It stayed with them. The only thing ingesting that drink would not do was kill you. That's what bitterness does. Bitterness seeks inside of you. It seeps into your soul. It seeps into your spirit. And it changes you. And you find no place for repentance. It's too big to pay. Can you imagine, what would it be like if you could not find forgiveness for your own sin? Just imagine it for a moment. What would it be like if forgiveness just no longer was present? That's what happens. The ability to own my own stuff, the ability to, to actually, I mean, this bitter thing is the price too big to pay. That's why this warning is so important. And frankly, and unfortunately, it's a real challenge. I see it everywhere I go. And I'm very concerned. 
Because this exhortation is written to you and me. It's an exhortation written to us and is written to the church of Jesus Christ. And the reason why the apostle writes this and says beware is because it's possible. And we need to be very careful how we're dealing with the issues we have with each other and those anxieties we have with each other and especially those hurts. When the power of hurt, when the power of the pain of what we've experienced as someone else, and we could call it trauma. I've been through trauma. I've been traumatized by more than one thing in my life, and that trauma never goes away. That trauma stays alive. It stays in me, and I'm dealing with it, and I'm having to overcome it. I can overcome it through the gospel, no doubt about it, but it's still there. And if we're not careful, that will become our source, and we will trust that. We will trust the pain of it. We will trust the separation of it. It's, it's ignorant of the gospel. It's foolish. It's all kinds of things, but we, we end up doing it. And it's, it's, it's damaging. You know, last thing for me, and I'll pray for us and we'll go, but... That no root of bitterness. I mean, I need to be careful how I'm dealing with my opponent because they could be very close to being a bitter person. And I actually do have responsibility for them actually do have responsibility that grace happens to them and grace creates repentance the provision inside of grace for us to know how to and that we actually repent of our sin is a gift from God and if that person fails that test I mean part of the reason I'm the one in conflict with him part of the reason I see his sin so clearly part of the reason why we can't get this right is because we're, we're needing it we need each other you need the person who's your opponent. And the power of that and the experience of peace and sanctification and grace becomes possible to us. And unfortunately, when we fail the test, bitterness is on the way um, and it'll rob you. It'll rob you of your very heart and your very heart for God and for Christ. And the shifting takes place and we're in trouble. Bitterness is a robber. Bitterness is a deceptive master. Lord Jesus, be our master. We read texts like this, and the warning is so stark. It's just scary. And so many times we get so stuck, and I do, and my stuff too. I, I get so stuck that I go pursue peace, sanctification, grace. Oh, Lord, isn't there another way? <laughs> and there's not. That's why the exhortation is so clear unmistakable I am to put energy into this I am to pursue with intent I am to oversee and make sure certain things occur in your character called peace your intention in our life and predestination of our life to become more like Christ to be like him your intention to be gracious to us and give us grace that we experience grace and live as Paul writes in Romans, we're plunged into the midst of grace. May that be true of us, and may we pursue. And may you grant the grace of the power of repentance and the recognition of the vulnerability that is so necessary if we're ever going to actually get there. Grant that, I pray, in the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.